If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Daniel. For today's episode, I am glad to be joined by Angela McArdle. Angela is the current chair of the Libertarian National Committee, or Libertarian Party. She was elected at the 2022 Libertarian National Convention in Reno, and she joins us today to have a conversation about faith and politics and the role that Christianity plays in the world. So, Angela, thanks for coming on, and how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Glad to have you. So, I wanted to give you a chance first at the beginning just to do some basic introductions. So introduce yourself to the audience. You've been on my old podcast, but you haven't been on this new one that I started with LCI. So if you could just give a little bit of a summary of kind of like your background, how you got involved in politics and libertarianism and anything else that you feel is relevant about your background, faith, political, or anything else. Sure. So I have been pretty much a libertarian since adulthood, since late adolescence. I became active in the party in 2016. Uh, Before that, I was just very much more like a political activist, leaning towards anarchism most of the time. And I had an opportunity to run for Congress in a special election in 2017. It was really exciting. I got recruited in 2016. And the rest is history. I found it to be an amazing platform to share libertarian values and engage with people on ideas. It was really great. After that, I decided that it was really important to sort of clean up the party because it didn't provide resources to candidates. It seemed, quite frankly, hostile to Christians a lot of the time, hostile to people who are libertarians but are socially conservative. And I thought that made absolutely no sense since I was a big fan of Ron Paul and I grew up in a Christian home. My father's a, he works for a Christian missionary radio company right now. Organizations that do broadcast into communist countries and places where it's difficult to be public about your faith. My father's in a missionary alliance. And so I've always been very distrustful of government because of the atrocities that I unfortunately got to hear about as a small child, or maybe fortunately, you know, unfortunate for the people who encountered them. But we heard all kinds of horror stories from missionaries who were coming back from China, Vietnam, people who survived Pol Pot's killing fields. You know, it made me very distrustful of government. And so I think I really had sort of the perfect upbringing right to be a Christian who ended up getting in libertarian politics. Right. So could you talk to us about the, you're you're coming up on like the first year since you took over as the chair at the Libertarian Convention in May of last year. So can you go over maybe some of the things that have happened in the Libertarian Party over the past year that you think people might be interested in? And I know there's been a lot of different things. Maybe highlight just a few of the accomplishments or developments or things that are in the works. 
yeah, there's been highs and there's been challenges, but it's been a really incredible first year. So just recently, we had February 19th, a big anti-war rally in Washington, D.C. And what was so incredible about that is that it was a coming together of people on the left and the right. It was the first large anti-war rally since the Iraq War, maybe in, in 20 years. You know, We had over 3,000 people show up. We crowdfunded it organically. We had about 20 speakers. It was a lot of work. But the end result is that the Libertarian Party gets to spearhead the re-revival of the anti-war movement in the United States. And that's really phenomenal. And we inspired rallies across the world, too. We've developed a relationship now with Julian Assange's family. We've got really good camaraderie and working relationship with a lot of people on the populist, like dissident left, who otherwise I thought we would have never had anything in common with. Mm. So that was a really great experience and it's opened up new opportunities. We just wrapped something called the Independent National Convention where we were a co-sponsor getting together with lots of people from all different backgrounds, minor parties, people who are politically independent, people who are interested in policy reform. And it was really encouraging to meet a lot of other libertarians and anarcho-capitalists there and Christians and, and people who weren't necessarily Christians, but you consider themselves people of faith who had concern about moral decay in the country and wondered, is there a way to, to write things like with politics without actually building Christianity or religion, which ugh, that word makes me cringe. I'm sure everyone listening to this understands, but <laughs> religion into policy. So we had some really great experiences there. We made some really good connections Going back to sort of the beginning of my tenure, we had a really big Bitcoin fundraiser, kind of like a telethon online. So we made some really good connections to people in that community. They're really jazzed about the new leadership and the Libertarian Party because they had always felt that Bitcoin is really an essential component of breaking away from the control of the Federal Reserve. And so they're enthusiastic that we're supporting it. Yeah, there's just been a lot of really good stuff. We're going to be hosting another Bitcoin event, I think, next next month in Miami and just looking for new opportunities and, and new things to go and do. Yeah. No, the Rage Against the War Machine rally was something I covered on my show pretty extensively. I had Irene from Liberty Speaks on, had Scott Horton on to talk about it, and I had Michael Heiss on after the rally and also talked about a little bit of that as well. And that was really cool to see as a former dissident lefty myself before I became a libertarian. And I just kind of over the last few years went like, what happened to all of my anti-war leftist comrades? They yep. seemed to, you know, after Bernie Sanders became irrelevant, it seemed like they all disappeared. But it was nice to see voices like that reemerge and be present at that anti-war rally. Some of the other things you mentioned there sort of lead into my next question, which is that back at the Libertarian National Convention in Reno, and this is sort of going way backwards in time, but there were changes made to the platform of that convention that at the time, there were some people who thought they were a little bit controversial. There was a change to the abortion plank, and really not really a change, it was just deleted. And now the Libertarian Party doesn't have any direct statement from its platform to say about the topic of abortion. And then also they changed a platform plank that dealt with bigotry and identity politics and 
how we feel about protecting people's rights and things like that. I think it used to say that we condemn bigotry as irrational and repugnant. And now the language more or less says that we just affirm and defend the rights of all individuals, regardless of race, sex, other aspects of their identities. Gender. Yeah, exactly. So, and I think those platform changes were made by obviously a predominantly led Mises caucus majority, which was the contingent, this new contingent within the Libertarian Party who sought to bring in more of the liberty movement and also people who were liberty curious or libertarian adjacent and were sort of hypothetically pushed off or turned off by libertarianism or the Libertarian Party because of some hangups with those two things. So I'm curious from your perspective now, we're coming up on a year since those changes have been made. Have those changes have had the desired effect where do we see more people of whether a religious or conservative or just different demographics, people of different beliefs and backgrounds coming in to the Libertarian Party or being more open to working with us, coalitioning with us, and et cetera? Absolutely, it did. Deleting the abortion plank was something that at first I was like, man, this is really controversial. I hope it doesn't blow up in our faces. And a couple of weeks after it was done, I I thought this is really the right choice. It just took so much tension out of the party. There are people in the party who are still pro-choice, but our platform doesn't tell them that they can't be, right? Finally, though, people who are pro-life can come into the party and feel welcome because the previous platform language regarding abortion really said to to keep the government out of it and that it took no position. But when we really dug in and we started talking to people about deleting it, the strongest reaction we got was from people who were pro-choice who said, you can't do that, you can't do that. And you know, when you really press, why? Why can't we do that? It's because they believe it takes out the pro-choice language. So, aha, <laughs> it's a little bit of a trap. It's right. pro-choice language that's phrased in a way that's supposed to trick us. So I think that was the right move. Candidates now can be openly pro-life on their campaigns and not feel uncomfortable and not feel like they're in conflict with the national party. That's right. There's the other platform position that changed. Yeah, let's dig into the bigotry. You know, we condemn bigotry as irrational and repugnant. Well, if you're anyone with any sort of political opinion in the last four years, you've probably been called a bigot. If you're a Christian and you've been vocal about it, you've probably been called a bigot. So it's kind of like I took the Matt Walsh approach on this one. You know, what is a woman? I was like, what is a bigot? Right. And (laughs) everybody could give me an answer, but no one could give me a straight, consistent answer. Right. It's like, well, okay, you explained bigot, but I'm not someone who, I don't hate gay people. So why would you call me a bigot? Well, you know, you say you don't, but we all know what you think. I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. Like, how are you beaming into my head and knowing my (laughs) private thoughts and who I secretly hate? Well, we can just tell. I'm like, well, this is okay. So I guess we're getting nowhere with this. So maybe we should just remove the word bigot from the party's platform. and. Boy, that was another thing that just killed all the tension, you know, because that was such a controversial position. Everybody was like, you can't be in the party. You're a bigot. You're a bigot. So no more. Yeah, no, that was, I mean, both of those things were things 
I struggled with when I first got into libertarian circles and libertarian party circles because of my, my Christian beliefs on abortion and also my Christian beliefs regarding things like homosexuality and transgenderism. And on a and it was always confusing to me because I'd be like, listen, on a purely political level, on the issue of like transgenderism and homosexuality, those people shouldn't really have any issue with me because all I'm saying is that I privately in my religious beliefs have a hard time affirming those lifestyles. But I don't want right. to wield the power of the state to stop them from doing anything. Might be a little bit of a different conversation if we're talking about what we're doing to impressionable young children. But when it comes to what consenting adults do, I really, politically at least, could care less. But they always had that line, you know, well, but we condemn bigotry as irrational and repugnant, so you're a bigot, so you're not welcome in the party. And beyond just the silliness of not being able to define that term, the silliness of like, why would you want to weaponize language like that to prevent potential allies and growth into your party? This did it just it's strategically not a good move. So and I think there's a need to have some defining aspects. And I think some of the important aspects of libertarianism that got actually further expounded upon, like I something very important is defining and defending property rights. And I know that was that's yes. something that people don't talk about, but that's also, one of the changes that was made to the platform was to have a more expounded statement on the topic of, pla- of property rights, which it's like, I'm not going to gatekeep around much, but if you're not down with property rights, <laughs> we're going to have a problem. So th- those were changes that I think were all good. And I think I agree with your assessment that they've, they've been helpful in lowering tensions in the party atmosphere, I think, and making the party and the movement more of an inviting atmosphere for people. So something I wanted to talk to you about, and this is a conversation we wanted to have a while ago, but I had a baby in May and then you had a baby. When was your baby born? I forget. December 4th. December 4th. Yeah. So I had one in May, you had one in December. So we've put the conversation off for a year. But last year at my state convention in Pennsylvania, there was, I won't name them, but there was this person who is also a Christian and a libertarian, at least identifies that way. And he gave a speech that more or less was very obviously in sort of like opposition to sort of the new style or like new direction that the Mises Caucus was bringing to the Libertarian Party. Because one of the emphasis or emphases that that you that you saw in sort of this shift in direction was like, let's not be afraid to just be open and honest about what our principles are. Like, that doesn't mean we need to be intentionally inflammatory or rude or provocative. But, you know, like, if our position is taxation is theft, let's not beat around the bush with that. If our position is, no, we think that we should, for example, abolish laws that say that, like, teenagers can't go, like, and work at age 15 or 16 in a job and enter the career force early rather than be forced to obtain public indoctrination camps, I mean, or what they're called public schools, until the age of 18, or our positions on war, our positions on really you name it, it seemed like the old style of libertarianism was to sort of like water down the message to couch our ideas in ways that wouldn't be inflammatory. They would almost, I always called it like dishonest evangelism was the term I used. And it was kind of like what libertarians were doing is like what some Christians would do where 
they're trying to trick people into like coming to church. They're like, what if we make the music like the music you like? And what if instead of the communion being the wine and the bread, what if it's like Doritos and Mountain Dew? And what if we don't yep. really preach from the Bible? What if we just tell you God loves you and everything you're doing is great and you can just keep doing everything that you're doing and God doesn't want you to change anything about you? And it's like, okay, cool. Like you, you get, you might get people to then come to a building called a church and you might get people to even then maybe be okay calling themselves a Christian if that's what they think it is. But it's like, that's not you changing people or evangelizing people to become Christian. You're changing Christianity to make it more palatable to people who aren't Christians. And that's to me what sort of libertarians were doing, especially those in the libertarian party. They were sort of trying to water down libertarianism. And I think, so the guy who gave a speech said, well, Christianity and libertarianism, you know, we're supposed to be like these peacemakers. We're supposed to try to get along with everyone. We're supposed to not be offensive, not be quarrelsome with people. And we got to be careful of radical messaging because it's going to turn people off. And that's not what we're called to do with Christians and libertarians. And you and I were both like, we have some disagreements with that approach. So yeah, let's get into that a little bit. Just what are your thoughts when it comes to, as Christians and libertarians, what are we supposed to be? Are we supposed to be the middle of the road people like the, hey, we're not left or right, we're libertarian. And and then as Christians, are we supposed to be lukewarm or are we supposed to be something else? Well, I mean, right. If you're lukewarm, you get spit out of right. his mouth. So I think that's <laughs> pretty clear. I think we're called to be principled. And sometimes the principled position is provocative, no matter how nicely you phrase it. If you go out and you say, I don't mean it to be personally offensive. I value you as a person. I love you and I believe you have intrinsic value as a human being, but homosexuality is immoral and a sin because the Bible says it so. That's provocative. It doesn't matter how many nice, loving, genuine, affectionate qualifiers you give it. It's just going to be provocative. And I think that trying to be nice when you say things, or, or what's a better way to put it? You don't need to be mean-spirited when you say things, right? We don't have to be mean-spirited as libertarians or as Christians, but there are things that you're going to say that are true that are just going to offend people. And once we start shying away from saying that at all, I think we're really going down a dangerous path. Uh, here's the, well, I mean, we've all seen the churches that have the ridiculous rainbow garb and you've seen the viral clips of quote unquote pastors saying God is they, them, God is she, all that stuff. We, we all know it's wrong, right? The thing that really triggered me was back in 2020, I was walking to and from work one day and I walked past the first Baptist church of Pasadena and they had a big sign out front and they said, what would Jesus do? Jesus would wash his hands. Oh, <laughs> no, no, Jesus healed the lepers, you know, that that is not the right approach. And so when we start watering things down and worrying so much about offending people, eventually we start distorting the message, you know, and getting really off target. And we've certainly seen the, the church do that. You know, there's been all kinds of controversies in the Methodist church and even the Southern Baptist Convention. And we saw a very similar controversy happen in the Libertarian Party. And that's why the Mises Caucus really had to course correct it, because that's 
sorry, we have to speak out about individual rights, free speech, the right to assembly, all of that stuff. And it doesn't matter if there's a quote unquote pandemic happening. Those are our constitutionally enshrined rights. And from an anarchist perspective, those are my natural rights as an autonomous human being. We can't water that down. It doesn't serve any purpose except to maybe try to make more people like us. Like it doesn't lead anyone to libertarianism. It certainly doesn't lead anyone closer to Christianity. Right. No, I mean, the, I think Christianity says the truth will set you free. And I think libertarianism is sort of in that same vein of, you know, it's like if true freedom is not going to come by sort of couching things in the least offensive way possible. It's like you're, sometimes the truth is hard. Sometimes the truth will be upsetting to people, but it's like, if we want to change, it's like an analogy I've often used is like, if I was in the car with you and we were, let's say, driving from Pennsylvania to Las Vegas. And I realized about like three, four hours into the drive that you're going the wrong way. Like you're taking, you're on the complete wrong road. And instead of heading west, we're heading like southeast. And I was sitting there going, I really don't want to upset Angela. Like she's going to be embarrassed if she's going the wrong way. She's going to feel like I'm. Maybe she'll feel like I'm mansplaining to her because, you know, I'll be accusing her of being a bad driver because she's a woman or something like that. I'll be like, you know, I don't want to tell Angela she's going the wrong way. It's just so instead of that, I'm just going to try to, I don't know, like I'm going to like try to encourage you to like, I'm sure you know the right way we're going, right? You check the map. Like there's no good way to like water down that message. I'm either going to eventually have to. I should do it politely. I shouldn't like yell at you and be like, you know, ah, you you idiot, you're taking us the wrong way. But I just need to politely be like, Angela, we're on the wrong road. I think we need to be going this direction and trust that you will, if you're a person who is engaging in good faith and we have the same destination of trying to get Las Vegas, you'll receive the information, realize, oh, I am going the wrong way. And then we can course correct and go the right way. Now, I realize that's a simplified analogy, people probably aren't as sensitive about driving the wrong direction as they are their lifestyle choices or their political beliefs or their religious beliefs. But if our goal as Christians and libertarians is to help people on, to, to be on the right path towards, whether it's towards God, whether it's towards freedom, then we aren't doing them any favors if we shy away from telling them the truth about, hey, here's how your support of the Federal Reserve and institutions that rely on the Federal Reserve is leading us into a leading our country and society more towards violence and more towards destruction. And hey, I'm sorry, but you know, you living in this lifestyle is separating you from God. And I'm not trying to hurt you, but I I hate to see you doing things that I feel like are destructive to you. And because I love you, I'm gonna say something. I mean, and you're a new parent, but this is also how I think we're supposed to parent our kids is we shouldn't be violent towards them. But if our kids are doing something wrong, we have an obligation to step in as parents and try to set them back on the right path. So I guess the person that we were both listening to at that state convention, I guess what they're trying to reconcile, which I guess I'd want to hear you comment a little bit on this, is how do we as Christians try to reconcile our role as wanting to be peacekeepers wanting to be in the world, but not of the world, but to still be that salt and light. And what does that look like? Does it mean that we, I don't know, like 
do we have to be coy at all in how we present things or should we just stand on the truth no matter what or i don't know is it is it just perhaps maybe more complicated than that and we have to take each situation and encounter as its own individual thing i mean i think we need to learn how to use our best judgment in social situations don't be a pest no one wants to be pestered no one likes a pest you don't do anyone any favors when you come across as annoying and that's a difficult thing to really explain. I know there are a lot of people in the Libertarian Party who do not pick up on social cues very well. There's autism, there's learning disabilities. And so those people are coming from a place of good faith most of the time, that they can just be really abrasive and rude. So sometimes it's on us to, to figure that out and get help if we're obviously missing the mark. And I think the same thing goes for Christians. Like, how many people do you think that the Westboro Baptist Church types? have one over. Probably not very many. That's a really horrendous, that's a really horrendous way to behave. The cop-out, the easiest thing to say, and I don't mean this to sound disrespectful or blasphemous, is, oh, be Christ-like, be Christ-like. Yeah, absolutely we want to be Christ-like, but uh, to be real also, like, it is so hard to do. Mm-hmm. It is so hard to do. And if you find yourself like constantly failing to live up to that standard, you know, you might want to adjust your approach. But if you fail at it every once in a while, I'd hate to see someone just clam up and do nothing because they couldn't be perfect. Because we, none of us qualify to die on that cross. Like we're just not there yet. We got to do our very best. But it's, I think we're all a work in progress, right? And so's our outreach. Yeah, think of. The ministry, if we're going to be Christ-like, you know, I think of the ministry of Jesus and the many encounters he had. And it, there's there's plenty of times where you read what, you know, he's saying to the Pharisees or to the crowds. And there were definitely some times that he said things and people did not respond very kindly. I mean, there were there was one point where people right? were just getting up and walking away and leaving. And the disciples were like, Jesus, like... That's such a hard word. Who can accept it? <laughs> and But then Jesus, after he gave them an explanation of why he was doing that, he said, what about you? Are you going to leave? And they said, well, no, you hold the truth. And so I think maybe part of the problem, I don't know, maybe you would agree this is at least some of what's going on here, is that I think some people want to like attract everybody. And I just don't think that's... And I want to be careful with what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that we should like write people off based upon like group identities or we should also understand that sometimes our job is to plant seeds and we don't necessarily always see those seeds bear fruit right away or we might not ever uh-huh. see that those seeds bear fruit. But we also, I think, have to recognize that we're not called to literally by ourselves save everybody or like associate with everybody. There will be people who get turned off by us and that's fine. There's going to be people who aren't turned off by what we have to say, who latch onto that truth. And we just have to kind of like keep going. And it's the idea of like, we have to find the remnant. And I'm not saying that we should find the remnant and then we'll screw everyone else. But I think first and foremost, we should be going after those people who do resonate with the truth. And then with everyone else, we just, we have, I think should have the mindset of, you plant the seed and you pray for the Holy Spirit to work on them, or you pray that life experiences happen that 
change their perspective. Right. I think so. I mean, it's it's an uncomfortable truth, but there are people out there who right now, you know, in their journey on life, hate God. They're angry. They're angry at God because of things that happened or things that didn't happen. And their hearts are full of hate. And I don't like to say that anyone is beyond salvation or that that it's beyond reaching them, but sometimes you cannot reach them right now. And I would hate to see a message watered down or morphed into something that was not the truth because we were afraid of offending people whose hearts are full of hate, who are no interest in listening to us in this moment. Like we need to go after people who are the most receptive and, you know, we can still pray for people who are far off, you know, and pray that God changes their hearts in his own time. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the harsh truths that you think as Christians and libertarians that are like the most important to say right now, but are also equally the hardest to say right now? And how do we approach saying those in ways that capture that balance of we're not just, I don't know, saying things in the most provocative way possible, but we're not watering down the truth and we're saying what needs to be said. I mean, I guess like the one thing that comes to my mind that the most is talking to people about the war in Ukraine and Russia. And it's like, no matter how much it upsets people when I say, no, I don't think we should be, that the United States government should be sending money or ammunition or any support to Ukraine. And rather, I think they should be telling Ukraine, go to the negotiating table now and negotiate a peace. And if that means you give up the Donbass and you don't get Crimea back, then that's what it takes. That's a truth that I feel very convicted of based upon just studying the issue, listening to people like Scott Horton and foreign policy experts at antiwar.com and the Libertarian Institute and things that were talked about at that Rage Against the War Machine rally we talked about earlier. But man, you'll really upset some people if you just if you just come out and say that's your view. So that's one example. But if you want to comment on that one, please do. And then are there other examples of you know, really important truths right now that we need to be bold in saying, maybe, you know, compassionate while we're saying it, but we do need to be bold in proclaiming because they're really important to be saying right now. I mean, absolutely. I agree on the issue of war. It's, it doesn't matter if you think you're fighting for a just cause when people are being murdered overseas infrastructures being destroyed. No one ever thinks about that, by the way. No one thinks about the other costs of war, that hmm. waterways are polluted and wrecked. People people end up with dysentery. You know, they die of starvation or disease, and it's a slow, painful death. People are separated from their families. What it's like growing up after witnessing the atrocity of war, PTSD, and the anger and resentment that it all breeds. It's wrong. I mean, it's... I really do think that supporting unjustified war, you know, a war that's not strictly self-defense, is immoral. And I think that we need to speak out against it. You know, if if someone put troops on my land completely out of nowhere and it was a total shock and there hadn't been six years or more of provocations and going back and forth, maybe I would feel differently about it, but... The war in Ukraine is very complex. The United States government and NATO have been involved and have escalated provocations against Russia, honestly, since the 1990s. This is no surprise, although it's a very sad situation. 
I do think as Christians and libertarians, like the right thing to do is to call for peace, not to call for military might from the United States or the military industrial complex. What about some other issues? So controversial one that a lot of libertarians are afraid to speak out on are being very politely called child's gender affirming care. Hmm. Yeah. I think I think that it's doing violence to children. And yeah. I think that's wrong. And I think that from a libertarian perspective, consenting adults can do whatever they want. I hope they make fully informed decisions. And sometimes there's a little bit of a gray area there, you know, trying to figure out what's fraud, what's informed consent. But with children, cutting off the body parts or disrupting the sexual reproductive system, one of your major body functions as a child is wrong. And I think that parents who engage in that are committing honestly a great evil. And even if they're doing it with good intentions, I do think that it's a right to call it out. Yeah. No, I 100% agree with that. I was actually in a Twitter argument earlier with a person I'm sure you're familiar with, but I don't like to name call people sure. on the podcast. I'll tell you afterwards, but they were just very hurt by my, I use the G word, the groomer word to describe some of this, which I try not to throw around too casually, but I do think sometimes it's appropriate to to call certain things for what they are. And what really irks me about this is that libertarians should understand that one of the biggest obstacles we have to people of all walks of life, but I think especially to just like your normal average, you know, middle-class American or to Christians or conservatives is that they view the call for libertarianism or for anarchism as the obfuscation of responsibility and rules and social order. And yep. I know you don't believe that. And I don't believe that. I, I actually just, my last episode, did this whole bit on how we don't need the state for there to be social order. And if anything, the state is the biggest obstacle to a godly biblical social order. But we turn off people to the idea of a spontaneous order when there are people who are using that title libertarian and then saying parents don't have a responsibility to protect their kids and to raise them in a certain way. And I want to be clear here, like this is a complicated issue. I'm not exactly a huge fan of what I know there's some libertarians who are more in in our camp who have said that they are okay with the state coming in and overriding the decision of parents if they decide with doctors and stuff to have their children be given what's called gender affirming care. And it's, I'm sympathetic to the call for, well, we have to use the state to intervene there, but I'm also hesitant because I just know, all right, but once we give the state the power to say, well, parents are no longer sovereign over their kids in comparison to the state. Well, then that opens up a, a really big slippery slope, I think, to be like, oh, well, and isn't this the same same argument with guns, right? There are people on the yep. right saying we need to ban transgender people from having guns because it's a mental illness. It's like, okay, so then you do that. And then a year from now, conservatism will be called a mental illness, Christianity yep, could be called a mental illness. And so if we say, oh, parents who allow their children to be given gender-affirming care are 
child abusers, so the state should take their kids away. Okay, how long until that's turned around on us? And it's like, oh, taking your kid to Sunday school? That's grooming. Oh, not giving your kid certain medical procedures? I'll just leave it vague like that for YouTube. Yeah, no. How long until that's considered child abuse and the kid, the state can come take your kids? So, no, I sort of reject the idea of the state being solution to this problem. But then it's like, okay, we then have the highest call to to be advocating for a personal responsibility of parents to then use that freedom responsibly. Like, yes, I want parents to be sovereign from the state, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to cheer on parents who use that sovereignty to do horrible things. We need to, if anything, be loudly pushing back against that aspect in our culture in order to stave off the demand for the state. What are your thoughts on on that? I think ultimately, like, why do we need the state to get involved? We're using the state to try to correct something that's a cultural problem. This is the same with Drag Queen Story Hour, people who are outraged and want to make it illegal. I'm completely sympathetic to that. When I see it, I'm very upset, disgusted. But there's a bunch of people who are taking their kids there. That is the issue. There is, for some reason, they feel compelled to do this and feel like it's a good thing. And we really need to address that culturally. And, And that's where Christianity, I think, does more of the heavy lifting even than libertarianism does. Libertarianism is not a perfect moral framework. Uh, As we're as we're discovering, you know, in real time as we try to navigate these issues. But yeah, it's there there's a real slippery slope there. I know that in Canada there are ministers who've been arrested for expressing negative views, biblical views on homosexuality. I'm sure it's not the only place. And, you know, the free speech is not a right that's enshrined in any type of Bill of Rights in England. The UK at large is quite behind on uh, on free speech and First Amendment rights. So we really need to be mindful of that. And the state has done some really horrendous things in the past. They did sterilization measures. Maybe people see this as a manifestation of that, but What if this was kind of turned against us, you know, if the tables were turned? I'm very mindful of religious persecution coming back and political persecution, which has been on the rise, obviously. We've all witnessed it. Yeah. Do you fear that, you know, one of my concerns as a Christian and a libertarian is that as the culture war ratchets up here in the West, that we're just going to get caught in this back and forth struggle that the left yep. coming down hard on the conservatives and the right wingers right now. But I, I feel like I see that happening in real time, like with people like Matt Walsh and Michael Knowles yep. and like the Daily Wire crew. Even someone who I love, Jordan Peterson, has given in a little bit to some of that angry reactionary mindset. Right. And again, I'm so like I on an emotional and spiritual level, I really get where they're coming from. But I feel like they're a little bit short sighted and sort of like understanding you know, how they're acting in this very high time preference fashion. And they don't realize that some of the things they're advocating for are going to come back and screw them. Just like the things that conservatives advocated for in the early 2000s. You know, what Dave Smith says it best. It's like the conservatives created the Patriot Act. And now the war on terrorism has been turned inward on the domestic population, especially the conservatives and Christians. So it's like, 
I just wish that we could learn our lesson and not make those same mistakes and do what you said, which is really like, this is a cultural problem, which means the only way it gets fixed is through the culture. I think the church has to do the heavy lifting. It's like, we, we don't need more laws. We need more people to, to come to Christ and to turn away from these evil ideologies that are dominating our culture. Yeah. And I mean, let's think about this. Get out. In a real world scenario, I have several transgender friends who are all adults. I try to be mindful of my rhetoric, social media, and conversations in general. I don't ever want to come across as so harsh, coarse, angry that they would be too ashamed and uncomfortable to come to tell me if they never had a change of heart and wanted to detransition. I don't want to be like a quote unquote safe space, but I still want to be a landing pad for people who want to turn around. Sort of like your analogy with driving directions. I did that, by the way. One time I was driving with a friend back from Las Vegas and I was pretty sure she was on the wrong route and I didn't say anything for like 30 minutes because I was so uncomfortable. (laughs) And when I finally said something, you know, it was like a long trip and I was like, maybe I'm not paying attention. GPS isn't working. And finally, when we figured it out, she was like, why didn't you tell me? (laughs) So don't be afraid to tell people. Don't be afraid to tell people. Yeah. Well, that was my, and I know you're familiar with him. That was kind of my experience with my friend Torin. You know, I knew him when he was Torin, and then I knew him when he transitioned and went by Audrey for a year. And I never, I mean, I never stopped stating what I believed to be true. I always try to do it in a very respectful fashion that was not dehumanizing. I tried to like, listen, like first and foremost, I'm your friend. I love you. God loves you. And I have no ill will towards you. And I can't imagine what kind of struggle this dysphoria and discomfort in your, you know, you have in your mind and body is. And I'm not trying to write that off at all. You know, I'm concerned about your relationship with God. I'm concerned about your long-term fulfillment and happiness. And I'm just not convinced that this is the right way for you to deal with these problems. But I never tried to come across as as hateful or not acknowledging just the obvious difficulties of what he was going through. And I think me and other people around him who all modeled that same sort of approach, we gave him the collectively, we acted as that sort of landing pad for him when he came full circle and realized, wow, this isn't working out for me. This isn't making me happier. It's, and, you know, he came to the point where he realized, no, like I'm just treating this pain in my soul. Super, this is his own words. He said, I'm treating this pain, but I'm treating it like superficially, like with a bandaid. But really the problem is like, Like my leg's broken and I'm just taking a bunch of pain meds. I need to set the leg and I need to seek healing. And so he's gone through that and re-embraced his male identity and and his relationship with God and going back to church. And I didn't have to compel, I didn't have to use force against him. Like we didn't have to use the state to put him back on the right path. I think if anything, that would have just made that situation worse. And so I think it's tough. I think we as Christians need to, I think, really embrace that sort of like kingdom mentality and have that low time preference to understand that God's timing isn't our timing. We often see evil and we see sin 
we see problems and we want those quick fixes, but God will ultimately bring justice and healing, but he doesn't do it in our timing. And we have to be patient and wait on that. And when we rush it and we try to force things, it doesn't go well. Absolutely. There's a real disconnect, right, between the timing of a social media soundbite, a short video clip, and how long it takes for something to sink in and for someone to decide they're going to make a change, be comfortable with it, enact it, and complete it, and stick it out. Those are two completely different timelines. And I've watched what Torin has, has gone through, maybe not from as close up of a view as you have. And I thought it was really encouraging. If we were to view gender dysphoria, you know, and, and transgenderism as something akin to a mental illness, we should think about like how much anguish that is. You know, as a teenager, I had about a year where I struggled really badly with anorexia and it was miserable. I was not like, yay, I'm anorexic. I'm out as a skinny person. This is my new identity. It was, it was a miserable uh, time in my life as a very depressed 16-year-old girl. You know, I didn't have support from anyone. I didn't know what to do. The last thing I would have needed was for someone to, to be like, good for you. You should starve yourself. That's not what I needed. I really just needed someone to be there for me until I was able to sort of find my way out. And I'm really grateful that it happened. And I wonder if that's the approach that we should take with people. It's what I try to do. It's like, I just want to be a good friend or person X, Y, and Z. And if they ever change their minds on this, I want to be there to, to congratulate them and affirm them and help them. But it's a struggle. It's a struggle to, to do all of that. We're imperfect human beings. We see things happening. And sometimes we do see it codified in law, by the way, in ways that are going to potentially infringe upon our speech or do things that we think are going to harm our children and not just physically, right? Like the things that they're exposed to yeah. in public places. And it's difficult to bite your tongue. It's difficult to move through this world with grace and Christ-like behavior, but we got to just, we got to just do our best. Yeah, that's all we can do. And I think that, you know, as we start to wrap up, I think that one of the things that Jesus did was and that he got scorned for was he would sit with the sinners and he would eat with them and and the yep. tax collectors. I always gotta I always laugh at that. It's like Jesus ate with the, I know, the, right? the sinners, so the prostitutes, triggered. and the tax collectors. Like, no, God, no, Jesus, not the tax collectors, please. <laughs> but they're the worst. But it's like that's what we have to do. And now I don't imagine Jesus sat there and browbeat them the whole time and like, well, you need to go and do this and you're going to hell. And then and he also probably didn't sit there and go, Oh, you you're a tax collector, you go and you, you know, extort people and you're the arm of the state and extracting people's property from them. That's just so great. <laughs> you know, right? Right? There was no like, you know, girl moment. Right. Like it wasn't like, oh, you're a prostitute. Like, that's amazing. Just more power to you. Like, no, it's like, those are, that's a false dichotomy. Like Jesus didn't do either of those things. And we don't know exactly what he said, but we know it was somewhere in the, he probably treated them like individuals. He probably did at yep. points challenge them to, there's that line, go and sin no more. But exactly. he didn't condemn them. Because if you if you immediately condemn people, where's the path to redemption? Where's the path to redemption? You know, and I think there's yep. that line that God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And it's like we, we have to allow have for a way that. out. Yeah, you got to allow people an escape route when they get 
into these situations. You know, and I think the same thing politically, right? Like, and again, everybody's in a different place. There are people who are probably unreachable right now, but they may not be in a year or, you know, two years from now. But if you're so vicious to someone, even when they do realize that they're wrong and they're going to change their politics or their religious views, they're going to be way too ashamed and angry at you to ever, ever approach you with it. And you could be, you could be that stumbling block. You could, that's a trip, right? To be a stumbling block before someone's converted. That's quite a paradox, but it could be the case. And so it's better to just not put yourself in that position. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can do that as people and we can be stumbling blocks and the church can do that too. I mean, I, I almost lost my faith because of how disappointed I was in the church back during the Iraq war and and the, and the yep. years later. I just, I mean, how much the evangelical church just like went all in on, D- Dave Smith said it in the speech he gave when I was at the Take Human Action Tour last week. He said it so eloquently. He was like, the evangelical Christians put all their chips on, let's kill a million Iraqis. And now they yep. wonder why they have no social capital. And it's like, you know what? And when they did that, like how many of the people in like my generation, your generation and whatnot, how many people have been turned off by the church just because they're like, yeah, I don't know how I can square you saying that Jesus loves me and loves everyone with bombing innocent women and children and families children. and people. Yeah. Like, I mean, there we're, are, we're there killing are, Muslim babies. That's, that's yeah. not a good thing to do. That's not right. a good thing to do. I don't care if their parents are, um, you know, quote unquote, bloodthirsty terrorists. You don't kill children. That's horrible. Right. And to connect this back to like, are we supposed to be radical or are we supposed to be like more reserved? It's like, you know, I, I don't want to be mean to people, but at the same time, like, I'm really not sure that the right approach is to just like mince words about how horrific war is and how horrific and it is almost like an abomination towards God. Like we're literally taking the name of Lord in vain when the West, which is still predominantly a Christian culture and uh-huh. it gets associated with God and the church. And when we are just so comfortable with war and we normalize and support war, we are taking the name of God in vain. And we are basically saying like that we're the people of God and we're saying God wants us to kill you and destroy your families and destroy your your infrastructure, your homes, everything. It's like that. I don't think that what we need to do with Christians who are doing that is to like sit down and go, well, we just have differences of opinions and let's talk about those like just very nicely. No, I think we need to like, like Jesus did, you know, when he went into the temple and he encountered the money changers, he flipped tables and he fashioned whips. He, you know, and I think to the non-Christians, we should be the, if anything, the most graceful and sympathetic towards. But when we're encountering Christians and people in the church who are engaged in corruption, engaged in warmongering, that's when we have to get that angry, righteous, angry Jesus, or do our best. We're not going to be perfect in expressions of anger, but I'm not saying we should be intentionally nasty to people, but we do need to be, I think, bold and radical in, in, in just stating like, no, like this is evil. It's damaging to the gospel and it needs to stop. And if it makes people uncomfortable, then they're like, oh, I don't want to see pictures of blown up shoulder. And it's like, well, I don't care if you don't want to see it. Like, this is what you're, this is what you're supporting. And you need to be confronted with the truth just as much as anything. You know, that's, I think the whole theme here is that 
whether it's offensive or not, that's what we are called to do, I think, as Christians and libertarians is present the truth. So, Angela, I want to give you closing thoughts and remarks on what I said, and then we'll do closing plugs and stuff like that. I mean, I completely agree with you. I think the truth will set you free, certainly from a spiritual perspective, because it doesn't matter how much freedom you have if you're completely separated from Christ. You know, you have spiritual death. And when it comes to issues of political ideology, individualism, free speech, property rights, you can have as many superficial things as you want. You can have, you can, like, if you try to grab everything maybe through, through power, you know, like that post-libertarian talking point, but you completely lose every libertarian, uh, belief along the way, like, what does it matter? You know, you, now you're just playing, playing the same game of lording your authority over someone else. And maybe it's the same way if you're too afraid to, to actually, you know, exercise your libertarian ideology. I think maybe that's the easier trap to fall into, right? Then you're definitely trapped in a bit of an ideological prison when you're too afraid to say anything and, and speak your mind. Like, you're just held hostage. And that's not a good way for anyone to live. So I would encourage everyone, if you're a libertarian or an anarchist and a Christian, you know, to exercise your voice, to speak the truth, and to try to share the truth with as many as people as possible. And use your best judgment on how brash, you know, and forward you want to be, but never couch the truth in lies for the sake of someone's feelings. Amen. Angela, I really appreciate you coming on and having this conversation with me for the audience to hear. And I think that they'll enjoy the topics and the perspectives that, that you were able to bring. Could you give any uh, just closing plugs for your personal stuff or anything for the Libertarian Party before you go? Absolutely. If you're interested in joining the Libertarian Party, you can find out more about us and join at lp.org. If you'd like to read my thoughts on, you know, any of the issues we've discussed here today, you can find them on patreon.com forward slash Angela McArdle. I also have a Substack and Locals. And thank you guys so much for taking interest in this stuff. Of course. Well, thank you again, Angela, for coming on. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope this conversation was informative and valuable to you and that you're encouraged to go out there and speak truth to power as we're called to as Christians. So thanks again. And I will talk to you again in two weeks. Take care. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.